Hey, just a heads up in this episode, we are going to be talking about suicide. Please take care of yourself and listen at your own discretion. If you are having suicidal thoughts, please, please reach out for help. You can call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline available 24 hours a day. That is 988 in the United States. You can also call 1-800-273-8255. Please reach out and talk to someone if you need help. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth, where we give you the stories behind the science of emergency dispatch. This is an official podcast of the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch, the world's leading authority in dispatch science. I'm your host, Becca Barris, writer and copy editor for the Journal of Emergency Dispatch. In each episode, we'll be bringing you stories of the fascinating people who work in this area. We'll give you their backstory, including how they got there, what they're working on, and what drew them to the field. These are people who represent the cutting edge in emergency dispatch, and I hope you'll join us to hear more about them. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth. Today we're talking with Jason and Kathy Lott with the Thin Gold Line Foundation. They're going to share Jason's story and Kathy's story too, and give us insights on the kind of resources their organization offers. Welcome Kathy and Jason. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. Yeah, absolutely. I was excited to find out about your foundation. I think on Facebook is where I found it. There's never enough organizations to support dispatchers. Jason, let's start with your story. How did you get into dispatch? So originally my dream was to be a police officer. And with that, when I was in school, you know, I, I behaved and tried to stay out of trouble as much as I could. And when I graduated high school, I decided, you know, because I was still too young to start the police department, that I would get a college degree to, you know, help my police career. In the meantime, I started my public safety career actually as a volunteer EMT. And that was in January 1997. And I was at a very busy firehouse. We were, at one time, we were the busiest all-volunteer fire department in the country. So I was going through the process for the sheriff's office. I had missed my physical agility test because I had a college exam or something. So a couple of days before that, we decided that we, we would run through it and just make sure I was clear with everything. And I was doing that with my brother, and he accidentally shot me in the knee when he was loading his gun. His gun malfunctioned and went off and hit me. And that pretty much ended it, you know, the sheriff's dream right there. I tried a couple times to get back into it, but just, you know, my leg wasn't having it. So I looked into a, a couple of different careers, one being, you know, in parole and probation. The other one, I decided to become a dispatcher. And when they gave me a choice of being, you know, fire or police, I decided on police because I had gone through college and I was already in the MT. So I wanted to mix it up a little bit. And I love being a dispatcher and an occasional call taker for nearly 20 years. Some of that time I served as a supervisor as well. I thrived under pressure. I loved the adrenaline rush of being a dispatcher. We were one of the busiest dispatch centers in the country. You know, we did shootings and carjackings and high-speed chases, all of it, you know, just gave me a rush. And I felt like I was an integral part of helping. So... During the, my career, I developed this bond with these officers and they felt like family to me. And I looked out for them and I made sure that they were safe. But everything changed on March 7th, 2015. In Maryland, the weather is very finicky. In March, it's supposed to be getting warmer and it had been cold that, that March. It had snowed a couple of days before. We had some ice storms. That night at work, I was working midnights and I was assigned doing lunch breaks. And 
it was a, a pretty quiet night. I know that's a bad word to use in dispatching, but it, it was. And I got a blue call and the blue calls for us were the most severe type of call, you know, everybody go. And it happened to be for an officer down. The call simply stated that somebody called and that there was a wrecked cruiser in their backyard and they didn't know if the officer was okay. I got no call from the officer on the radio. So, you know, it, it made it a little bit more urgent for me. So I dispatched everybody there. And as bad as the roads were that night, I told them, I said, you know, make sure that y'all get there safe. I know you want to get there, but, you know, even in his dire time, I was still trying to protect the people going. And when the first officer got there, he advised me that it would be, you know, a fatal accident. And that was a, a severe gut punch to me. I got sick to my stomach, you know, I started crying a little bit to myself and at that time, working midnights, the first thing that I thought of was when I first started dispatching, I knew that if something bad ever happened, I would never leave an officer on the street, whether he was injured or deceased or anything. So when my time came to go off duty at 630 that morning, I decided to stay and make sure that he was taken care of. I worked until about 1130 or 12 that morning and I went home and it, it was just, I, I just didn't feel right. Like I, I couldn't sleep. There was just, you know, something going on and I had to be back to work that night. And I distinctly remember like, you know, how am I supposed to go to work feeling like this, you know? And nobody really said, hey, are you okay? Or checked on me or anything like that. And I went back to work that night and, you know, did my job. I did what I was trained to do and, you know, kind of pushed through it. But over the next nine months, things kind of went downhill because even though I had thrived with some of these types of calls before, they were never directly involving like injuries or death to police officers. So over the next nine months, I had a, a bunch of those happen. Aside from the, the accident where Brennan Merbane died, and an officer got run over. I had one that got shot. I had one that got rammed in his cruiser. And I had this weird bank robbery call where they ended up shooting three people. Unfortunately, all of these also led to high-speed chases, and they ended up shooting and killing all of these suspects in these calls. And before, I had never had such a cluster so close together like that. You know, they had happened over time before and stuff, but never like that. So eventually, like that feeling that I had gotten the night that, that Officer Rebane died, it never went away. And it just kind of sat deep inside of me, like there was something gnawing at me. And I started becoming really physically ill. I had a lot of stomach pain, I had a lot of vomiting, I had a lot of nausea, and that turned into some body pains and stuff like that. And I was in and out of the hospital most of 2015 and most all of 2016. And with that, we got a lot of different diagnoses. It was either a rare blood disease or it was Addison's disease or it was always something. And I always got treated for stress and anxiety because I didn't know what was going on, or at least that's what I thought. It took a brilliant hematologist oncologist to finally just sit down and talk to me because none of these tests were coming back like they should have been. 
And he said, you know, what do you do? You know, you're a police dispatcher. That's, you know, a pretty stressful job. And I said, yeah, but I'm getting stressed because I'm sick and I don't know what's going on. He goes, no, I think you're getting sick because you are stressed and anxious. And he goes, I think you probably have PTSD and you need to go see this forensic psychologist up in Baltimore. So we went up there and he diagnosed me with PTSD rather quickly, you know, within 15, 20 minutes that I had, you know, one of the most severe chronic cases he had ever seen. And at the time, that was the first time somebody had said that to me. I had gone to some county therapists. They weren't really hip on the idea of labeling what I was going through or trying to associate it with my job. And I didn't really open up to them because I was afraid of losing my job. And I was afraid that if I seemed broken, that they would just throw me away. So after the PTSD diagnosis, I found an amazing psychologist a little bit near me named Dr. Keaton. And he had a, a very long history of working in public safety. And with Dr. Keaton, he had developed a critical incident stress program in, the, in South Carolina, where he was from. And one of the things that he insisted on was including dispatchers and police officers in the process when there was a major call. And that was one of the first times that somebody had actually decided to do that. So I started seeing him weekly. Everything was, you know, in my mind, I thought was going good. I wasn't getting any worse. And he did everything he could. And he was amazing and tried everything. But on a visit to my primary care doctor, you know, he went through this, you know, checklist of stuff that doctors go through, you know, check here for this, check there for that. And he compared it to one that I'd done earlier and saw that it wasn't really getting any better. So he decided to send me to a psychiatrist to get some medication. And the first doctor did very little medication, you know, not very strong. He was on, on a good path. And it just so happened he decided to get out of outpatient and focus on his inpatient clinic. So he, he hired like three or four more doctors to come work in his clinic. And over the months, I never saw the same one twice. Mm. So it was always repeating or, you know, backtracking. And because they saw me not getting better, they decided to add more and more medication. And it was always, you know, let's double this one. Let's add that one. You know, you can't sleep. Take this one. Now you can't wake up. Try this one. And it got to a point where I was on 15 different medications. And that added to the problem. It didn't get any better still. And on top of that, I started sleeping all the time. I wasn't engaged. I was a zombie. And it was a really rough time. And on top of this, my primary care doctor decides that, you know, Maryland just passed medical marijuana. Hey, let's throw that in the mix too. So, you know, growing up, I, w I wasn't a big fan of drugs, you know, being wanting to be a police officer and everything. And it, it just didn't stick with me well. And it, and it made me sleep more and, and I hated it. So at one point, the primary care doctor added a high blood pressure medication because some of these medications can cause high blood pressure. Well, as I started taking it, I started passing out. And I would pass out in the bathroom and hit my head. And one time I was walking out in the dining room and I passed out 
And luckily, I fell to the left, and I hit my head on the table. And I'm saying luckily because on the right, there was an open sliding glass door on the second floor that I would have fallen out of. And that time, it, I did it in front of my, my young son at the time, and it really scared him. The medication should have made me better. You know, that's, that's what medications do, but it, it made me worse. It masked a lot of problems, and it didn't enable me to look further and find better options. But that better option actually came as a chance encounter from Kathy. She would, had taken my son to the county fair, and I was at home sleeping like I did, you know, like I said, 20 hours a day. And she came across a booth called Warfighter Advance, and she started talking to the gentleman working there, whose name is Jim Buckingham and his wife. And as they were talking, Jim realized that he knew me from my days at the firehouse. We used to run together. And he was very upset as to how bad I had gotten. So Kathy asked about what the program was, and it's a, a program that helps at the time, it was for veterans dealing with PTSD, medication issues, reintegration problems. And it's a seven-day retreat that is a training op that teaches, you know, better ways to deal with things. So Kathy asked if they would allow public safety in, and he said that he had to talk to Doc Beaton, the lady in charge, and she would let us know. We got a message saying that I was invited to come. So now they had included first responders in there. And when I showed up, I was really bad. I looked like a zombie. I was, my face was distorted. My body was distorted. I'd gained a whole bunch of weight. And I, I just remember, you know, going through the motions kind of, you know, being on so much medication. And I didn't remember 90% of what was taught that week, but I remembered that the 10% that I did remember was that the medication wasn't the best route and I needed to find better alternatives to that. So I started to wean off of them. Some of them I cold turkeyed, which is not the right thing at all, but some of that side effect of, this, of coming off cold turkey actually kind of snapped me back into reality because I was finally feeling something after two years. I had been medicated for two years and been in this apocalyptic zombie zone, you know? So I'm, my final medication date was October of 2021. And I felt lucky and alive and was able to finally forge my own path to recovery from, from my mental health. But the physical and emotional damage from those meds is, is permanent. My eye vision went really bad. I had memory problems, emotional problems, sleeping problems. I overheat really easily and I can't get rid of most of the weight that I had put on then. But with Warfighter, they gave me back what I had lost. And as part of that, I asked to be a mentor and try to help other first responders and, and, and people in the military get the gift that I had because they allowed me to forge my own way back to, to me. Warfighter is 100% free to military and first responders. We even pay to fly people from England if they need to come. So as part of that, I've been to Warfighter now 11 times. I travel 
1,600 miles six times a year to go down and help them. And I owe this program a debt that I will spend the rest of my life trying to repay because they gave me not only my life back, but they gave my sons their father back and my wife her husband back. The sad thing is, is that through all this, I've learned that only seven states recognize dispatchers as first responders. And that's bad because it doesn't allow first responders some of the benefits that police officers and other first responders get when they're in trouble or if they need help. And more needs to be done to open those benefits and resources up to, to number one employees. Sadly, one of those things was I initially got fired from my job when I ran out of leave. That's something that should have never happened. I shouldn't have had to fight for my retirement. We almost lost our house in the process. And because of some stupid Maryland laws, I only get a partial part of my retirement. That's about it. Yeah. Well, first, I want to thank you for your vulnerability in sharing these experiences. It can't have been easy for you to talk about, you know, the inciting experiences that led to this stress and anxiety and the physical manifestations of that. And then to talk about your medical process is extremely personal. So I'm really grateful for that. Kathy, (laughs) you were on the other side of this whole journey. Tell us about your perspective. What was it like to watch your partner go through this? Okay, so for as long as Jason and I have been together when he was doing his dispatch work, he worked two days, two nights, was off for four, repeat the process. Those four days off, a lot of times he spent as an EMT at the firehouse. And I I didn't really get to hear a lot of the calls that he took. He would sometimes come home and be obviously upset by a call that happened over his shift, but we didn't really get a lot of details. He did not really go into the kind of gruesome aspects, but he also didn't go into how he really felt about anything either. So I knew that it was a stressful job. I actually even sat in with him and his employer as a, just an observer. And I've also actually been on a ride along with one of his police officer friends. And I can tell you, there's probably a lot more that happens on the dispatch side of it than happens on the, the police side of it. We probably took a couple hundred calls the night I sat in with him versus the time that I went on the ride along. We had maybe one or two calls. So, you know, the the caseload was just that much more. And it was just that much more, I guess, exciting in a way. It was more, you know, your adrenaline was rushing. New calls were coming in. Things were happening. But on the family side of things, we we went through the motions, right? We went through 2015 in and out of the hospitals, in and out of doctor's appointments. We really, we just didn't have a clue what was going on. It was tough. We were not only dealing with Jason's illnesses, but our son also was dealing with some behavioral and mental health issues at the time. So it was kind of a struggle to deal with both of them, having things going on at the same time a lot. So when we did come across the oncologist who told Jason he had PTSD, it was surprising to both of us, right? We we had all these physical things that were happening. He was being treated for GI issues and pain and All of these uh, things were happening, but we never really expected it to come down to a mental health issue. So it was surprising to hear that it was a PTSD-related thing that we were going through. 
And once we did finally get on the right path, what we thought was the right path turned into, like he talked about with medications. And it, it was so much, there was so much medication, so many falls that he took. And there were just, we were in and out of the hospital and in and out of doctor's appointments. But there was, speaking of medication, 15 different meds is 60 pills a day. That's 1,800 pills a month. That's a, that's a lot for anybody to take in, no matter what kind of medication it is. But when you're talking about psych meds or antidepressants are not, you're going off label by writing so many together. So you, each person becomes a science experiment at that point. And sadly, one of the, the major side effects of starting those medications, especially more than one, is that you have a 400% more likelihood to commit suicide on the meds than you did off of them. Yeah. And that is actually one of the things that worried me with Jason being on so many meds wasn't wasn't so much the self-harm. He never, ever talked about self-harm from day one, even as sick as he was. He never, never gave up on himself or on the fact that things would eventually get better and we would find a path. But there were times where I would come home from work and I'll be honest, I would I would see our bedroom door closed at the end of the hallway and I would be a little worried. Like, I don't think I want to open the door right now. I'll just wait until I get the kid fed, get him bathed and, and get him into bed. And then then I'll check to see. And I, I was never sure like what I was going to find behind that door. So that was a, an unusual feeling to come home to quite often. But we struggled. We almost lost the house. He lost his job. We almost lost him. We made it through with Dr. Keaton's help, with Warfighter's help. And when all of this was happening and I saw that we were on the right path, I said, you know, I, I can't imagine if any other dispatcher or first responder ever had to go through what we just went through over these past few years. And this was back in early 2019. So I said, I got to start a foundation. I got to get the word out there. I got to let people know that mental health in, in this first, first responder career path is very important. And that's when I founded the organization and started in Maryland. I actually did it as a surprise to Jason. And during a small little retirement party we held for him, I surprised him with kind of the ribbon cutting of the, the organization. So our goal initially was really just to raise awareness, right? We just wanted to get the word out there, make the public aware of who dispatchers are and, and the struggles that they go through. And it evolved a little bit into, well, let's get into the dispatch centers. Let's make sure that the first responders are actually taken care of. And there were a few books that I'm sure many people in the dispatch community are very aware of. One was written by Jim Marshall, and that particular book, in my eyes, opened up the world of dispatch and mental health to me. And I thought that that would be a good resource for dispatchers to have. Another 911 related stress book was by Adam Tim. And I said, you know, this one has a lot of really good information in it too. Let's put these books into the hands of the dispatchers, you know, so they can have something to go to and refer to before the bad stuff happens. 
And what we did is we started putting together what we call resource baskets. And they have these books and they have a little dispatcher coloring book and colored pencils and swag, right? Like who doesn't like having a pin that says that they're a dispatcher, that they're a hero. So we put together these baskets and and we walked them right into these centers and said, here, this is for you guys. Jason at that time was available, you know, for people to reach out to. He's now much more of a subject matter expert with his work with Warfighter. So he's very versed in peer support and and outreach. So right now we're still doing the resource baskets. We're still trying to get into the centers. We lived in Maryland until 2020. We were able to supply a few different counties with our baskets. And we moved up here to Michigan in 2020, a small little Northeast piece of heaven, if you will. And that was to kind of help the family get through more of the process of healing. And when we're not around sirens and we're not around big cities, it's, it's a little bit easier to do. So we started reaching out to the rural 911 centers up here and also recently last fall started working with the Michigan State 911 Administrator Joni Harvey and we're actually listed as a mental health resource with Joni Harvey's 911 website through Michigan State Police. And we're working with her and we're working with Nina and APCO administrators to to try and figure out what we're going to do next. What are what are our goals? What are we really on track to do all in the meantime, you know, fundraising, raising awareness at the public level and our local PSAPs here in Northeast Michigan. Uh, and I'll tell you, I was a little bit surprised when we came across our first rural 911 center to hear that they only had two dispatchers. A lot of times only one dispatcher working at a time. I thought, oh, well, that's easy peasy. They're only getting a couple of little random, you know, calls about different things. Well, come to find out when you're in a, a place like Northeast Michigan and you're in a town where everybody knows everybody, these 911 call takers are the dispatchers combined and they're getting calls from their neighbors or getting calls from friends and family and, you know, to hear their stories and to hear the different type of struggle that they dealt with up here was very eye opening. So it's enlightening to us to go into these different 911 centers and hear their perspectives and their stories and for them to hear Jason taking thousands of calls and and all these horrific calls that he took so it's it's kind of a, a educational for everybody all the way around when we when we go into the centers and the other thing that's worrisome being in a, a dispatch center by yourself is when you have a major call in the middle of the night you're automatically isolated and isolation is one of the worst things that can happen when you're dealing with something, especially initially. You know, like I told you, I went home that night, Officer Rebane died on my channel, and I was by myself and I dealt with that, you know. And these dispatchers in rural areas, you know, they get a call from their neighbor who committed suicide and they're working by themselves, you know, for eight more hours. And then you know, that's that's really harsh. We learned very quickly that dispatch centers, no matter if you have one person or a thousand people, deal with problems and their own unique problems as well. Yeah, yeah. Isolation is a universal problem for emergency dispatchers, I would say. Right. So either, you know, you're working in one of the two butt centers where you're working the night shift alone and you can't walk away from your console if something happens. You can't kind of hit that refresh button because someone has to be at the console. Or if you're, you know, in Maryland at one of the busiest centers in the United States and you can't get a break because 
you're understaffed and there's not someone who can take your call while you're, you know, go breathe in the bathroom for a minute. Yeah, it is. It is eye opening. We are hopefully going to start getting into a little bit of the political part of dispatch. And unfortunately, Jason and I have done a little bit of research over the years, and we came across some pretty interesting statistics about who actually considers the first responders, uh, dispatchers, actual first responders. And, and when it comes to what their benefits are being first responders here in Michigan, we actually aren't one of those states that uh, recognizes dispatchers as first responders. So we have reached out to our local lawmakers and hopefully in the fall when they reconvene, we can start to really get into the legislature and get into that part of, you know, pushing for recognition really for dispatchers. Right. And I talked to a lot of people about reclassifying emergency dispatchers from, you know, being clerks to being actual first responders. And I hadn't thought about retirement benefits in that light because, Jason, you couldn't work. You physically couldn't work. You were so ill and yet they fired you. And so you can't get your full retirement package which isn't right because, you know, dispatchers are the first first responder. They're taking a lot of that trauma on themselves and, you know, they should be fairly compensated for doing so and they should be supported. Right. Because a lot of police departments, fire departments, they cap retirement at 20 years because of what they see. Right. Like Kathy mentioned earlier, some police officers, even in busy areas, go on eight or nine calls. Right. But that dispatcher that's working 12 hours, There were some nights I dispatched 300 calls and having to deal with 300 calls in your head over a 12 hour period is really rough. And being classified as clerk or a secretary, you get stuck in basically a generic retirement that if you're lucky, you can get out of at 30 years with a crappy, you know, 70 percent or whatever it may be. And when it came time to fight for my retirement, because I put a date range of what happened between March and December of 2015. And I didn't just put one date on there. I got ordinary retirement instead of work-related medical retirement, which cost me 40% of my retirement. And I lost my health insurance too. So those are things that can't happen. Dispatchers, just because they're not seeing something in person, doesn't mean that that picture in your head isn't 30 times worse than what is actually going on. And having to deal with those pictures in your mind, they don't go away. We try to put them in a little closet and lock the door, but eventually that closet's going to get full and bust open. And without the proper help and benefits and appropriate retirement, more dispatchers and call takers are going to go through what I did. Yeah, it's really cool that you guys are getting involved in the political side of things in the in the push to reclassify emergency dispatchers because sto- these stories are valuable, right? It's one thing to say, oh, dispatchers are burnt out. Oh, they experience all of these things. But it's a completely different thing for a lawmaker to hear your story, Jason, to hear your story, Kathy, and think, oh... This job is different than what I thought it was. And that's the problem because a lot of political people, they're not going to take the time to to find a busy 911 center and go in there and sit for 12 hours and, and see what's going on. And that's something they should really do because 911 isn't just a phone number. It's a critical component of life to 
be able to call and get help or call and, you know, get an ambulance or whatever the case may be. However many hundreds of millions of calls go through 911 a year and, and people look at it like, oh, they're just answering the phone or oh, it's running a tag. You know, that's that's part of it, yes, but there's so much more to it than that. And they need to realize that. Yeah. And I will challenge our local lawmakers to actually go into a call center like Ingham County, who dealt with the MSU shooting here in Michigan. I would challenge them to go sit in and listen to the calls that are happening and to watch like Jim Marshall, when he watched his sister go through the motions of being relaxed and and just hanging out and talking. And then when the call comes through, just seeing the body change and to see the, the expression change and to just feel the change in the room when these calls are coming through. I, I challenge the lawmakers everywhere to go ahead and, and sit through just a couple of hours and see see what they picture in their head. With and, the al- and also listen to their stories because every dispatcher has a story. It could be one or it could be a hundred. And those are engraved in their minds and in their hearts and in their souls. And that's something that never goes away. Dispatchers are often called the unsung, the unseen heroes of 911, right? And they're not going to be seen. They're not going to be heard unless we make some noise. So thank you for your foundation for making this much needed noise on behalf of this profession. As we wrap up here, what is one thing that you would like listeners to take away from this episode? That you're not alone. There are dispatchers all over the country and all over the world that have the same feelings that you're having when you go through something horrible or you hear something horrible that there have been other people on the same path but it's very important to know that you need to find the right path and the appropriate path and not try to bury yourself or isolate yourself or cloud it with medication because that's not the right answer in the very short term medication is fine but in the long term, it's dangerous and it could be deadly. And if you can forge your own path back to the somewhat normalcy that you had before, you'll find that the effort that you put into finding your own path and taking it is much more rewarding than trying to bury it in a bottle, whether it's a pill bottle or a bottle of booze or a drug bottle. Yeah, and Jason speaks to the the dispatchers for sure because that's what he knows. And I would say speaking to the public and and just the communities that are impacted by 911 call takers and dispatchers, you know, the the public needs to be aware that there's there's somebody at the very beginning of that call and when you hear about events with first responders and you hear about oh firefighters and police officers and emts and we're doing all of these things for for all of these first responders that hey don't forget that the first first responder is that dispatcher the very first person that you talk to in an emergency is that call taker and that dispatcher so I want the public and the communities in Michigan and around the nation to know that the first responder is that 911 call taker and dispatcher and not to forget about them. There's humans that are taking these calls. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, thank you both so much for being on the podcast today. In the show notes, we will have a link to your website. It is thethingoldlinefoundation.com. We will also have a link to Warfighter and to Jim Marshall's book and Adam Tim's book. And thank you so much for the work that you've done. And thank you for being on the podcast. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Dispatch in Depth. Remember, it really helps if you rate and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dispatch in Depth is hosted by me, Becca Barris. I'm also the technical director and producer, and Matthew Maiko is the executive producer. 